Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. We are in part four of this seven-part series. And as always, I want to mention, in case anybody's just joining us, uh, the notes and recordings of all of the previous sessions are available for download at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And again, even if you're just joining us, you can catch up by listening to all the previous recordings, and I would strongly recommend everyone, if you can, downloading the notes, because there are lots and lots of scriptures that we refer to, and rather than be flipping around in your Bible, you'll have them all, or at least a good portion of them, in front of you. Sometimes we jump off the page uh, and look at some other scriptures, but by and large, this is the outline that we're trying to follow. This fourth part has taken us from the Old Testament now into the New, and looking at the glory of God in the New Testament. And there's a lot in the New Testament about the glory of God. And it really starts to get exciting now as you understand how the Old Testament connects with the New Testament, particularly on this topic. And never in all of my years have I seen so many scriptures that perhaps I didn't pay that much attention to in the past, but now that I'm focused on this theme, I see it everywhere in the Bible. And I also see the central importance of the glory of God in the New Testament gospel message. We often think of the gospel as simply being Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead so that my sins can be forgiven. Well, that's all true, but I think you're going to see in the next few sessions that the glory of God is central to an understanding of the gospel. And particularly when we get into part five, we're going to return to a key passage. And this was perhaps the first scripture that really sparked my interest in this subject and caused me to dig much deeper. Everybody knows the verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Paul uses that as his centerpiece to launch into a clear um, description of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man has fallen from glory. The gospel is to restore him to glory. And so when we come now to the New Testament, we saw that some of the prophecies, particularly Isaiah, prophesied about the Messiah, the coming Savior. But one important thing that he prophesied about the Messiah, we saw in Isaiah 40, is there is one coming who's going to reveal the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. That's a powerful, powerful prophecy. 
And we need to pay close attention to how that prophecy was fulfilled. It was, of course, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And we also saw that later on in Isaiah, Isaiah talks about the coming Messiah, that he would have no beauty, no majesty, no outward uh, glory, if you will, in his appearance that would attract anyone. And yet, we all know from the Gospels that flocks and flocks of people were attracted to him. John and Peter and James and others sold everything. They left their nets, their businesses, their houses. They forsook everything to follow this man. What was it that they saw? Well, I think we answered that question last time. When John opens up his gospel, we often quote the first part of this verse, but we need to look at the entire verse because every part of it is important. John 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. More literally, we saw he tabernacled amongst us and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the opening chapter of John's Gospel, as he's trying to explain who Jesus is and why it is so important for you and me to know him, he first states that we have seen his glory. Now, in the Gospel of John, glory is a very, very important theme. And I never particularly paid too much attention to this until I began to dig deeper in this study. But if you're following in our notes, we're on page 28 of part 4, and we're looking at subheading E, Glory is a Major Theme in John. We saw two important words in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, and in the New Testament, it's the Greek word doxa, which means glory. And in the Gospel of John, the word doxa and its derivatives, verbs to glorify, etc., they are found about 42 times in the Gospel of John, glory and glorify. And this glory that John said we have seen, that we have seen, we also looked at last time, it literally means to look closely at. This is obviously something that captivated John's mind, his heart, his soul, his whole attention, and the three and a half years that he and the other apostles were with Jesus, he was studying this very carefully. And in the end, he was able to boldly declare, the glory of God came and tabernacled amongst us, just as it did in the tabernacle of Moses of old. The glory of God tabernacled in the person of Jesus Christ.
We have seen it. We have been looking carefully at it. We have seen his glory. Now, I want to go through a number of scriptures in John just to show you how often he refers to this and what an important part it plays in John's whole gospel message. And in addition, of course, to John 1.14, which we just quoted, uh, we have seen his glory. We don't have to go too much further in John chapter 2, in the changing of water into wine, John notes something very important about that first miracle, more exactly, miraculous sign. You see, John understood something about miracles. There, there's something to be seen. It's, it's a demonstration. It's a sign for others to look at, and something is being revealed through that sign. Listen to what he says after the fact in John 2.11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, again, you know the story, changing the water to wine, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed something. Well, you could have thought he revealed his power. Maybe he revealed his concern for the people there at the wedding. But that's not what John saw. Here's what John saw. He thus revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. You see, when you have eyes to see, miracles reveal the glory of God. The whole creation is revealing his glory. But in particular, all of the miracle signs and wonders that Jesus worked while he was here on earth and continues to work now in the earth through the Holy Spirit, they are all a revelation of the glory of God. It wasn't just so that a sick person would feel better or that they would have enough wine for the wedding, something far bigger than that was taking place. God was showing us his glory. Jump ahead to the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And we'll read verse 4 and then skip over a lot of it because I'm sure you know the story. You can read the whole chapter if you don't. John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus dying and being raised back to life after four days in the grave. John 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard this, in context, what he heard was that his friend Lazarus was sick. <clears throat> Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Listen to those words carefully. It will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. That's a different way of looking at things that we wouldn't normally think about. This sickness will not end in death. It is planned 
for a purpose. The end is not death. The end is God's glory. You see, in the end, it's going to be for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Dropping down now to verse 38, when Jesus comes and meets uh, Martha and Mary, everybody's distraught, of course, because Lazarus is dead. Verse 38, Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see what? The glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. So, from Jesus' perspective, this whole event was not about sickness and death. It wasn't just about Lazarus coming back to life. The main theme from Christ's perspective, is the glory of God. This sickness is for God's glory, not the sickness itself, but what happens in the end will be for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. You know, I think we can broaden this a bit and say many times we're looking at situations in life, even in our own lives, that look dead, they look hopeless, they look like, wow, this thing is not ending well. But Jesus turns it all around. If you're looking to God in faith, in the end, it's going to be for God's glory. Everything, in the end, will be for God's glory. So, all we need to do is believe. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And indeed, Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all the people there saw God's glory manifested when Lazarus came back to life. Next chapter, John chapter 12. We're told the story of some Greeks who came wanting to see Jesus. They came to Philip in John 12, 21, and they said, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, remember, 
Jesus had been repeatedly emphatic about this. He was not come right now for the Gentiles. He was come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But word comes to him that some Greeks, Gentiles, have come wanting to see him. So Philip goes to Andrew. Andrew and Philip come to Jesus and tell him, these Greeks are here wanting to see you, Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this happens often in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't even seem to be paying attention to what people are asking or saying. Well, what he's saying is the response. We want to see Jesus. Here's Jesus' response. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You will see him. You will see the glory of God. Because Isaiah prophesied all mankind together is going to see his glory. What's he talking about? Verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Listen carefully to his prayer. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Pay close attention to verse 33. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So, very clearly, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour Jesus is referring to is his death on the cross. Yes, indeed, this will bring great glory to my Father, and my Father will glorify his name, and my Father will glorify me. Note, in all of these passages, and we have a lot more to come, the centrality of glory in all that Christ did, whether it was performing a miracle, raising the dead, or he himself going to the cross. It was all about the glory 
of God. In John 13, verses 30 to 32, um, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. This was at the Last Supper. Judas is now heading to betray him, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. Now, he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be mocked, beaten, spat upon, and crucified. And yet, here again, he emphasizes not the betrayal, not the suffering, not the wounds, but the glory. Now, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. It's almost like Jesus now has a one-track mind. This is all about glory. My Father's glory and him glorifying me. John 14 and verse 13. Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. So Jesus says, even prayer is not just about getting an answer, getting your bills paid, or a new job, or whatever it is. The ultimate goal of prayer is to bring glory to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. And then we come to the most important passage of all in John's Gospel that over and over, I I didn't even count how many times, you find the words glory or glorify in Christ's high priestly prayer just before he goes to the cross. John chapter 17, uh, we'll pick out certain verses here. Verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Now, we all know what the time is. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to go to the cross. That hour has now come. The time has come. What is first and foremost in Jesus' mind, heart, and spirit as he's coming to his Father in this final time of prayer. Glory. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Verse 10. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. 
and glory has come to me through them. Starts to sound like a broken record. Glory, glory, glorify, glorify, over and over in this prayer. Skip down to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, not just for his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. You can put your name next to that one. That includes you and me. He's praying for all future believers in this prayer. My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Pause for a second. I believe we'll be able to show this in part five. That glory that he's referring to here is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The spirit of glory will soon be coming upon them after I am glorified and entered back into my glory, they will have the very glory that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Pause for a moment. Jesus' ultimate desire here is that this glory that is coming upon all believers will be such that it unites them and causes the whole world to recognize there's something different about them. This may bring back to your memory Moses' prayer in Exodus 33, where he prayed, Lord, show me your glory. And he also prays there, Lord, if your presence, if your glory isn't with us, we're not going anywhere. Don't take us up from here. What else is it that will distinguish us, set us apart from everybody else? Is it not your presence or, in the context, your glory? So Jesus is praying here, Father, they need this glory so that the whole world will recognize who they are. They're different. Not just because they claim to be Christians, not just because they carry big Bibles and have bumper stickers, but your glory is in them and upon them. That's my prayer. And here it comes, verse 24. Remember, he's still praying for not just Peter, James, and John, but all future believers, including you and me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. 
the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Glory, 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 glory. That seems to be the primary concern on Jesus' heart as he goes to the Father in this last time of intercession. Glorify me. I want to glorify you. Bring glory on my followers, on my believers, and make them all one as we are one so all other people will recognize that you have loved them. And by the way, I want them to spend eternity with me where I am so that they can spend all of eternity enjoying, marveling at, seeing my glory. Oh, hallelujah. I say amen to that prayer, Lord. Answer that prayer for each and every one of us. You know, sometimes when we, when we just read these words, we miss the, the total power of what the scriptures are talking about. Let's back up a little bit. John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. We're talking about the creator of the universe. That creator, the Word, became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory in bodily form. That's what John is trying to communicate here. We saw the glory of the Creator God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, I've been enjoying a song the last week or so. It's a song that's uh, just come out recently by a group called Sidewalk Prophets. And the title of the song is Everything in Awe. Beautiful, beautiful song, beautiful lyrics. It basically talks about how the whole creation stands in awe before its creator. And one of the things that really captured my heart as I was pondering some of the lyrics in this song, we often marvel at the universe, and, and rightfully so. It's amazing. The, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the, the whole creation around us, it all reveals to us the glory of God we saw. And we stand in awe when we look up at the night sky. We stand in awe when we look at God's creation. But as this song rightly points out, the whole creation stands in awe before its creator. <laughs> Hallelujah. The stars are dancing around before their maker. The galaxies are spinning as they worship their creator. The trees of the field are clapping their hands. The whole uh, universe is singing praise to God. The waves of the ocean are singing lullabies to their creator. What, a, what an amazing God 
that the creator of all this chose to become flesh, chose to become one of us, yes, so that he could die on the cross, be raised again, and become our Savior, but also so he could come and reveal the glory of God, the glory of the Father's love, the glory of the Father's power and wisdom. We have seen his glory, and our hope is that because Jesus prayed this in his final prayer, Father, I want them to be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory you have given me. That is our hope. Now, let's go even a little further into some other New Testament scriptures, and even some of these will still be in the Gospel of John. But one of the things we picked up in those verses is how God glorified His Son on the cross, in His resurrection, every aspect of Christ's life, God was glorifying His Son. And in Luke's Gospel, the final chapter, Luke 24, verse 26, the, the two men who are on the road to Emmaus with the risen Christ, they have not fully recognized Him yet. Jesus said, Did not the Messiah, did not the Christ, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. Enter his glory. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8, Paul writes, None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know what they were doing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They were crucifying the Lord of glory. And I mentioned from John 17 that when this would literally be fulfilled, the glory coming into them, I have given them the glory that you gave me, this would happen on the day of Pentecost with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We can see that in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, when Jesus stood up and said, If anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams, rivers of living water will flow from within him, out of his innermost being. By this... He meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Hasn't happened yet. It's a future event. It's later to happen. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So, once Jesus is glorified on the cross, through His death, His burial, his resurrection, and finally, when he ascends back to the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit is sent. John 8, 
verse 50 and verse 54. Jesus said, I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he, the Father, is the judge. Verse 54, Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. John chapter 12, verses 14 to 16. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Very important theme, this theme of God glorifying his son. It's central to the cross, to the empty tomb, to his glorious resurrection and ascension. It was all about the Father glorifying his Son. Look in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Okay, how did that happen? You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he, Pilate, had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. So, Ultimately, through his triumph over death, his triumph over the grave, his glorious resurrection and ascension and exaltation back to the right hand of the Father, God was glorifying his Son and his servant, Jesus. Philippians 2, we all know these verses, 9 to 11. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, exalted his son, and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those in earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. So God glorified his Son. Now every knee must bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to bring glory back to the Father. And finally, finishing up this section on God glorifying Jesus, Romans 6 verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, I trust that you're seeing there are many, many scriptures 
in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John, that center on this theme of glory. It's all about God's glory. Seeing his glory, God glorifying his Son, the Son glorifying the Father, and even that glory coming upon Christ's followers. Now, we come to what is probably the most important scripture passage in this part, and we'll even be returning to it in part five because it is so profound. Second Corinthians four verses three to six. Second Corinthians four verses three to six. And even if our gospel is veiled, some Bibles say hidden, is veiled to those who are perishing. Those who are lost, those who are not saved, they can't see. The, the, the gospel is hidden from them. They don't know what it's talking about. They have no clue what the gospel is about. We have to keep remembering that as we interact with unsaved people. And the next part helps us to understand their true state. The God of this age has blinded, not their eyes, Paul's very specific here, blinded the minds of unbelievers. Their minds have some sort of a dark, thick veil over them, so that even when they hear something about Jesus or something about the gospel, they can't grasp it. They can't understand what it's talking about. This is, of course, referring to Satan, the god of this age. I'm walking through this very carefully because every part of this is important for us to understand. Satan is very busy. He has picked his target. His target is the mind of the unbeliever. Why? What what is he so interested in here? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see. Okay? That's his motive. He doesn't want them to see something. What is it that he's veiling or hiding from them? What is it that he is so busy trying to hide from the world today? so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Okay, that's pretty easy to understand, but he's not done yet. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Every word there is important. So, Satan's busy blinding the minds of unbelievers with evolution and humanism and false religions and all kinds of crazy philosophies and beliefs. He doesn't really care what he has to do as long as he achieves his goal, which is he doesn't want them to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Gospel, of course, means good news. What is the good news? According to this passage, it's the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is the good news. You can't separate 
glory from the gospel. And so what Satan is working so very, very hard to do is to prevent people from seeing and understanding this good news of the glory of Jesus Christ. Remember, Isaiah told us he would come and reveal that glory to all mankind. But now, Satan is trying his darndest to prevent people from seeing it. All right, follow very carefully here. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves. People don't need to hear about you and me. They need to hear about Jesus Christ, the glory of God. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6 is one of the most profound scriptures in the New Testament. Out of nowhere, it seems, Paul goes all the way back to Genesis 1-3, and he quotes where God commanded light to shine out of the darkness. Verse 6, For God, who said, let there be light, he paraphrases it, let light shine out of darkness. This is a little hard if it's new and you've never really studied it before to make this connection. But all of this is connected. He's talking about the gospel, how unbelievers can't see it or understand it because Satan has filled their minds with all kinds of strongholds and reasonings and arguments and wrong beliefs. But it's so that they cannot see the light. What is the light? Paul told us in verse 4. It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. If you've been with us throughout this study, you know that very often in the Old Testament, when they saw glory, they saw light. It's something radiant, something that shines. So this light he's talking about is the glory of God. And then he goes all the way back to Genesis and quotes, God said, let there be light. Let light shine out of darkness, and now he ties it in with the gospel and with every Christian believer. For God, who said that, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thus, our title for part four, Glory in the Face of Christ. Summarizing, and I would recommend that you spend some time going back over this 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. Look at every word carefully until you can make the connections. The gospel, the good news, of course, is for our salvation. Satan doesn't want anybody to get saved. He tries to blind us to that good news. But beyond that, 
what he's especially interested in is blinding unbelievers so that they cannot see the light or the glory of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And when a person truly gets saved, Paul says it's just like what happened in Genesis 1-3. God calling light to shine out of and into the darkness, the darkness of our hearts. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made that light shine in our hearts, radiate in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Notice, what it is that we're coming to know is the glory of God the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we see that light? In the face of Christ. We have seen his glory. If you want to see the glory of God, Paul says, look at Jesus. That's where you will see the glory of God. We looked at the scripture last time in Hebrews 1, where the writer of Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers in a variety of ways, through prophets, at many different times, in many different ways. But in these last days he has one message. He has spoken to us by his Son. Not just through his Son, but his Son is the message. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So this ties right in with what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. If you want to see the radiance of God's glory, Look no further than the sun. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. God has now chosen to reveal his glory through the face of Jesus Christ. Not through the face of all the other religions that are in the world today. No, 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 no. They're not all co-equal. Glory will be revealed only in the face of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who was loved by his Father. He laid down his life on the cross, and he was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He is now ruling, reigning, triumphant, and soon coming King called the Lord of glory. And finally, in closing, when Paul saw him on the road to Damascus, it, it's first described for us in Acts chapter 9, but several times thereafter, Paul gives the testimony about that encounter with Christ it was so awesome, such an overwhelming experience. 
Years later, he was still talking about it. And let me tell you something. When you see the glory of God in the face of Christ, I don't care if it was 50 years ago, you'll still be talking about it. Acts 22, 6 through 11. I'm reading from New King James. And he's describing that experience. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly, a great light, notice the light, a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? <laughs> kind of answered his own question there. I know who you are. You're Lord. And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light. Notice that. Those who were with me, not just Paul, the others in his party, all saw the light. And they were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So they saw, but they didn't hear. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, Whoa, stop right there. Again, same word, doxa. I could not see for the glory of that light. Paul is basically saying, the glory blinded me. The, the radiance of the glory shining through the face of Jesus Christ was so bright, so awesome, so overwhelming, it not only knocked me down, it blinded me. I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me. I came into Damascus. And of course, Ananias would have to come, lay hands on him, and his sight be restored to him. But notice again the central part of Paul's testimony the great light that he saw. He calls it the glory. I could not see for the glory of that light shining from heaven all around me. And, though it's not mentioned here in the context, it's pretty obvious, it was shining through the face of Jesus of Nazareth. In conclusion, we've seen already, and we're going to continue next time going further into the New Testament, but already we've seen in the New Covenant, God chose to send his own son to bring salvation, but of equal importance to reveal his glory through his son. And in part five we're going to look specifically at how 
the glory of God comes to you and me through this gospel of glory. <clears throat> it's called the gospel of the glory of Christ. And when you and I believe in that gospel, it's intended to make us glorious. It's a glorious gospel, and it produces a glorious church, a radiant church, a church full of that same glory, because that was Jesus' prayer in John 17. The same glory is now to come upon them and into them through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So next time we'll continue into part five. Show us your glory, the glorious gospel, the glorious church. Let's stop there and let's close together in prayer. Father God, we thank you that the Lord of glory Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom Isaiah saw from afar, coming into this world, revealing the glory of God. Lord John, James, Peter, and the others, they witnessed, they saw that glory, they wrote about it in their epistles and their gospels, it changed their lives forever. And Lord, it's changing our lives too. And we thank you tonight for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who came to reveal the glory of the Father. Father, glorify your name in your Son and in your people and help us to continue to gaze upon that glory as we wait for your soon and glorious return. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.